glimpse into the future of urban mobility. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, and this week I'm coming to you on location from Mazdar City in in Abu Dhabi in the UAE, the world's famous zero-carbon city, uh, which has also become a bit of a testbed for mobility, uh, both the future of mobility and the retro future of mobility. And my guest this week, joining me here in uh, in Mazdar City, is Scott Smith, who is a futurist. He's the founder and managing partner of Changist, which is a futures lab based in Amsterdam, a consulting group that works with public-private entities as well as NGOs, helping them to understand the landscape ahead. And Scott and I are here in the UAE this week to uh, give lectures to one of his clients to help them understand sort of the landscape of urbanism in the future. Uh, And so we've taken a detour here to Mazdar to sort of see. uh, We've so far visited an empty PRT bay. Uh, We've taken a ride in an autonomous Navia shuttle, looked at scooters, looked at docked bicycle stations, and really sort of come here to look, of course, at a sustainable city um, that is surrounded by parking. Um, And so Mazdar sort of lays out many of the ironies today of future mobility, sustainability, resiliency, and so forth. So thank you so much for joining us, Scott. No, it's my pleasure. And it's my pleasure to welcome you back to Mazdar. Welcome you to Mazdar. Well, thank you. For those of you listening, by the way, this is a, this is a special commotion crossover event, most ambitious crossover since the Avengers films, <laughs> where the second half of this conversation can be found on Under Futures, which is the Changest uh, podcast this week. Um, so first is an opening question, Scott. Um, tell us where we are. Let's lay out the scene here. This is my first time in Massar. You've been here on several occasions. Uh, it's amazing to see it built, but what, what's sort of your take on where we are right now and what's happening? We we are we are in the kind of I guess a smart city 1.0 fever dream, uh, not just because of the ambient temperature, but because of the the sort of idea itself. Um, if I have my if I have my references right, so Mazdar City was developed. Uh, I think the idea was originally put forward in about 2006 um, as a, a kind of master planned you know city out here in the desert not too far off of the main motorway outside of Abu Dhabi, right next to the airport, but it was meant to be a, um, a demonstrator of a number of things. I think, first of all, a demonstrator of um, uh, kind of early, you know, sort of closed-loop, sustainable, self, self-powering, self-generating, self-cleaning, uh, sort of self-cleaning smart city um, complex built in multiple phases. I think uh, the the piece that we're sitting in right now, if I have my numbers correct, opened in 2014. Um, and uh, it was meant to be a mixed-use kind of corporate campus, residential living, um, you know, solar uh, closed-loop water systems that, that are, are uh, you know, returning gray water uh, for use. Um, the PRT that you mentioned, the, the sort of personal autonomous transport or I guess it's a guided transport at that point, um, how far we've come, um, that was meant to be the literally the kind of, you know, the visual in your head of a, of a smart pod moving people around the city. You're basically in a render. You're in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, an urbanist render dream from 2006. Yeah, it's fascinating. And the thing about the thing about this, for those of you who, of course, have seen photos, or, or you know, hopefully photos not just the renders, is that from a mobility standpoint, when you're in the footprint, Mastar really works. We've been walking around. The shading works. I was here earlier this uh, this year with Wolfgang Kessling, 
who runs Transolar, which is the firm that basically worked on a lot of the microclimate engineering here. So the shading works, the wind tower works. It's actually a hospitable environment here, even in May, where, you know, I mean, uh, in the sun, of course, it's like being in an x-ray. Um, but as a walkable <laughs> environment, it works. And the scooters that are left about by Quickly, which is one of the local firms here, um, are actually suited to scale. So it's very interesting that, you know, when you're inside of Mazdar City, um, you are in one of the most sort of urbane realms in the UAE. Um, but then, of course, you know, we're surrounded by a sea of parking. The only way to get here is to actually drive. Um, and then, of course, you know, the PRT system that was supposed to take people from the garage uh, through the site, uh, well, the PRT is nowhere to be seen. The PRT is no longer in residence, I guess we should say. Um, well, one question, Scott, I guess since this is a sort of special Gulf Futures and Gulf Retro <laughs> Futures episode of, of uh, the Commotion podcast, um, I was hoping you could talk a bit about, yeah, I guess sort of the mindset that sort of fuels this, right? Um, you know, this was a vision of the future and they were determined to build it. And yeah, as we've already seen, you know, that hardwired PRT system has fallen by the wayside. The future is not a PRT system. It may be an autonomous shuttle. It's more likely to be the scooters here. But we can sort of see, you know, over the last decade or so, multiple overlapping visions of what the future, in scare quotes, yeah. of urban mobility would be. And I'm curious, yeah, your thoughts on that mindset. It's, well, you know, the UAE kind of overall is a, is seen by, I think, a lot of different Developers is a is an interesting test bed because you've got you know an enormous amount of space that you can use. You basically can convert sand into you know financialized square square footage uh, and, and do any kind of development you want to try out here essentially. And so you know from a from a, a kind of blank sheet of paper point of view, I'm sure it made sense at the time. Um, I don't know as much about uh, you know the sort of Mubadala who was the property developer in the government of Abu Dhabi's. Um, original intentions in developing it, but, uh, you know, I imagine that it was, you know, all of this is kind of happening against the backdrop of the broader transition away from um, at least a partial petro economy. Um, you know, the UAE is not a, a, a sort of a petro state as such, um, but it, uh, you know, is in the way that we sort of think about it, but it's, um, uh, it's, you know, it kind of gave an opportunity to change the perception, you know, look at things like um, sustainable energy production. And, and, like, here we are now in 2019, and there's a, you know, massive solar park being developed by DUA just uh, up the road from here. Um, you know, other other later generation sort of sustainable energy initiatives that have taken place. So in some ways, this is kind of like the full life cycle of the early, you know, kind of self-feeding, self-licking ice cream cone of a smart city. Uh, model that didn't really work out when you open the doors, but then it's also not sitting in a, in a it's not sitting in a pure market environment. Um, it, it's sitting in context alongside many, many other kinds of developments, from leisure and entertainment to uh, you know transport, airports, malls. There's a Formula One track about you know probably within visual distance of here, um, just over the horizon, and yeah. <laughs> It's it's kind of a fragment of the of the Gulf Futures 1.0 dream, I think. Yeah, it's interesting to be here in the sense of you know, I mean, again, as I mentioned, you know, we're surrounded by sort of parking, and you know, being in the Gulf really sort of underscores the intersection of mobility and land use, right? I mean, you know, we've been driving here uh, from sort of the depths of the desert, and you know, you sort of see you know the sort of you know the Gulf urbanism of. of isolated housing estates that are really only accessible by car. And now in Nazareth, we're in this pocket of, again, of the incredible walkability. I'd love to know what the walk score of this place is. 
Um, but it raises really interesting questions about how do you sort of push this broader mindset. So I guess this is a question for you, since this is sort of your, your one of your roles here with Dubai Future Academy and others is, is how do we create the mindsets for change, right? I mean, in the United States, where most of our listeners are for this, um, you know, and, and I've seen this in discussions at LA Commotion and in all of our conversations about, you know, in order to really sort of shift the mobility paradigm, you need to shift the land use paradigm here. And, you know, we're in a place with state-owned developers, we're in a place where, you know, building out automotive sprawl has really happened at light speed compared to the United States. Um, do you see science that's really starting to change in a sort of 2.0 sense about really understanding that there is a different paradigm of development um, than, what we, than what, we, what we've seen so far here in the Gulf? I, I think it, 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 there is, and I think it tracks along with the kind of broader, the broader shift away from the, the sort of economic model um, or evolution or however you want to look at it, the transition of the economic model that's kind of brought the OAE to where it is right now. Um, you know, it's 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 everything from banking, logistics, you know, transshipment from from Europe to Asia, um, it, you know, leisure and hospitality, all those things I mentioned before. But that has kind of required a traditional, you know, bu- kind of building mentality within the unique economics of a market like this. You know, that as you say has a, a you know a smaller number of um, mostly government-tied developers. Um, who are who are kind of on a different mission, and my sense is, you know, more broadly now, there's there's a there's a much bigger push towards um, moving the the economy onto a, um, a sustainable footing, not just kind of macroeconomically, but in terms of energy, you know, shifting from uh, petroleum and natural gas to to you know wind, solar, um, uh, and rethinking kind of how sustainability is built into the architecture. Um, the Museum of the Future that's tied to the Future Foundation that we do work with back in Dubai, you know, is a fully LEED certified building that was actually quite complex to design and engineer from what I understand, not only because, you know, it's this crazy kind of landed spaceship tourist um, structure, uh, but also the, the, the message that it represents, the sim- sort of the symbolism of what it means to build this kind of representative icon of the next vision of the future. Um, and you know, Expo 2020 is coming next year. Um, there's a tremendous amount of development going on around that. But I think the broader, the broader shift, and as much as you can turn a very large ship, you know, and as, and as integrated as the sort of property development and transport and retail and housing and everything is here, you kind of have to turn that all at once. <laughs> so it's a very slow turn. But I think generationally, there's a shift. Um, you know, much more of a demand from, you know, younger people in the region, younger Emiratis to, to you know, they recognize what that sustainable future needs to be like. For, so, for example, um, one of the entities that is kind of resident here, we're looking right at it actually, is Khalifa University. Uh, so a, a UAE university that has one of its sustainable energy programs resident here on campus. Um, so you've seen some of the young women that have just walked past us uh, are students in that program. You know, the biomass building is behind us. There's a kind of, you know, solar wave and wind energy research building to the other side. So it's almost like the ideas have been rebooted and are kind of being reevaluated. But that's still sitting in the context of ongoing sunk, you know, uh, plans and structures. So there's a massive Carrefour, you know, hypermarket now built just past the other car park here in Mazdar. And all that seems like yeah. cognitive dissonance. We were talking about it as we drove up. 
Yeah, well, I, I, as part of that, I mean, you know, all the institutions you just mentioned are all effectively, you know, um, yeah, universities, state entities. There's still this sort of very top-down notion of like defining what the future is and defining what this will be. Um, you know, one of the one of the questions we were asked at the, where we were giving talk was really about you know why there isn't much more of a startup ecosystem in the UAE and what it would take to develop that. And you know, and, and the startups that are here are things like Kareem, which is effectively a, you know Uber for the Gulf, which Uber has apparently been in talks with for some time to acquire. Yeah, they, that's done. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm curious too. Your thoughts on this too? I mean, you know, we we um, you know we valorize uh, entrepreneurship and startups in the U.S., but it's sort of interesting to be here in a place where that, there's much less of that. And they're desperate to have it. Um, from a mobility standpoint, changing that mindset. I mean, is that something that gets changed by a startup culture, or you know, you know, there's that L and K, you know, the best way to change leaders to invent <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not sure how well that works in a golf context. Well, I think there's a there's you know there's an attempt to do to kind of work work both ends of that equation as far as I can see. And one is to, um, you know, to try to take a sort of forward-leaning approach to, to regulation and make it as, as quote-unquote, innovation-friendly as possible um, within certain constraints. You know, again, sort of working within the, the, you know, the background rule set of the system, which is, I think, you know, intended to manage the transition more than anything else. But, you know, there are accelerators that are popping up. There are programs back in Dubai that are bringing entrepreneurs into work with, um, you know, some startups to work with RTA, the, the Regional Transport Authority. Um, you know, it strikes me as kind of early days, but there's definitely a, a, a recognition that there needs to be a local, um, a local entrepreneurial culture seated. It's, I don't think it's lacking in the character whatsoever. I think it's just a case of having the culture set and that is harder to change. You can't, you know, as many, many failed innovation hubs and, and uh, you know, magical co-working cargo cult centers have found, you can't just build a building and people will show up. Otherwise, this will be a fully populated, thriving smart city 1.0. Um, I say the flip side of this is one thing that you know at least Dubai in particular has done very well is uh, done some innovative sort of corporate or uh, government incentives on this. Our mutual friend Noah Rafford in the Prime Minister's office uh, coined the Drones for Good program. Uh, this is where I'm going to plug the Dubai Self-Driving Challenge, uh, which was uh, actually sort of launched at LA Commotion in 2017. So there's been some really interesting sort of government programs on that as well. But um, but yeah, yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious to see if they can sort of crack the code on like how do you basically sort of um, accelerate that shift into more sustainable modes in a way we haven't done in the states. I, and I think that's much more deep. It's deeper in the wiring of the of the economy. Part of it is a is a cultural thing. I mean, as uh, we were we were having a conversation, I think last night or yesterday, with um, uh, someone who works locally here. You know, until recently, or really still effectively, things like bankruptcy. You know, a, a failing company can get you imprisoned. Because that's the, you know traditionally the sort of the the, the, the way the sort of rule set worked. Um, that worked, you know, in one era it doesn't work now. So you have to change those regulations. You have to change things like residential visas. You've got to you know change access to the market itself and incentivize people to stay long term and develop things and invest long term and not just um, you know come in for one year or nine months in a kind of incubator program and then sign an MOU and leave. That doesn't you know that. That works if you're sort of you know bringing an architect in to build a building or design a building, but it doesn't work if you're trying to build a company that's going to be here for more than a few years and move on. 
Well, changing gears a bit here, Scott, who is a futurist, just took his first ride in an autonomous vehicle, the <laughs> Navi shuttle here, which is sort of interesting because the Navi shuttle is sort of a replacement, in a way, for the PRT system, but the Navi shuttle is, like many of its demonstrators, uh, on a fairly confined track. So, Scott, what was it like on your first autonomous vehicle ride? The smell of ozone, the, that, that new self-driving car smell was fabulous. It was, um, no, it was interesting. I didn't really think about the fact that it was... There was no one really piloting it, although I did spot a, a PlayStation joystick just behind the, uh, the sort of operator's seat, but he didn't seem to have it in his hand. Um, you know, as with anything else, it was a little bit jerky, just like riding a, an e-scooter. Um, uh, I, I, you know, the, the, the signs inside asking, you know, telling people to be worried about their, or watch for sudden braking, you know, it feels like a kind of standard issue warning on the future. Yeah, we actually have a... a a grocery delivery truck backing up near us, sitting next to two Teslas who were quietly parked in the sun, baking away. Um, so it was it was a fun ride. Just the aesthetics of it were kind of interesting, being inside the vehicle. Um, but as you say, we were basically following the track of the former PRT. So that in and of itself is a kind of weird metaphor. I'm not sure for what. <laughs> yeah, so say, and nothing says a sustainable city like a, the blast of an internal combustion engine as the truck drives. <laughs> um, well, the other I want to come back to is, if, so a few years ago, you know, you wrote a great essay, because uh, you're based in Amsterdam, you wrote right. a great essay about really sort of the cultures of mobility. So Scott wrote an essay on Medium. Really, I think, I think it was about the phase of micromobility right after the massive Chinese scooter manufacturers had dumped, you know, hundreds of thousands, really before it had launched in the United States. And Scott really raised the question of what he called mobility spam, you know, the notion of like, is this a transformation or is this simply um, superimposing a, a false cultural mobility onto other contexts? And I'd love to ask you the second half of the podcast here to sort of unpack this because, yeah, it's sort of interesting again where, you know, the sco- I mean, we walk into the sustainable city and scooters are lying about. The same scooters you might effectively find, nine bot segways or segway nine bots you might find in any other city. So um, that was almost two years ago, Scott. I'm, I'm curious, you know, your sort of initial thoughts on that and particularly in the culture of Amsterdam, the yeah. world's most bikeable city or maybe second after Copenhagen, about how they've worked there and, and also. Because the, the counter argument to yours I would make is is that the problem isn't the culture of micromobility, it's the culture of which they're embedded because in the United States, we leave them on the sidewalks because Americans just throw things away on the streets. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, two, being, years, two years later. Being from the generation that threw buckets of KFC out the window on the highway, um, that last scene in Mad Men wasn't fiction. Um, yeah, I think it comes back to this issue of all futures are local um, and the attempt to sort of impose global futures or, or kind of trans-regional futures are, is quite difficult to do. Um, uh, you know, I kind of repeated my mantra yesterday that culture is the original API uh, and, and, you know, application planning or programming interface. The, the problem that, that struck me, and so this was, this was the, the article that I wrote was about bikes originally because this was pre-e-scooter. Um, and that is, you know, we've been watching the, the sort of flood of capital going into um, uh, Chinese startups uh, and Asian startups, you know, Ofo, Mobike, um, and seeing the enormous number of bikes that were being cranked out and then dropped into cities in very large fleets and kind of following the, you know, the Airbnb model, the permission, and the Uber model of quote-unquote permissionless innovation, um, these ventures were, were dumping, you know, large chunks of metal at scale in different cities. Well, as you pointed out, different cities have different cycling cultures, different countries have different cycling cultures, or more broadly, mobility cultures. How you drive here is not how you drive in the U.S., is not how you drive in the Netherlands. Um, and, you know, here we are in a country that's saturated with bikes already. You know, the world's largest cycling garage is in Utrecht down the road from me. 
Um, it has infrastructure. It has a culture. People, you know, only really tourists needed bikes. Um, but that didn't stop the providers from using the same deployment strategy in Amsterdam as they would use in Santa Monica or in Paris. Um, you know, dropping them en masse onto the streets without any kind of real interaction with, you know, the sort of city authorities, the regulatory authorities, to even agree what might be a sensible solution. So, you know, it was raining metal for a while, and of course, um, you know, as soon as, as soon as that happens, you start finding them in, the, in canals. People were fishing them out of canals, um, you know, jailbreaking them, trying to, to do other things with them, and generally just get them out of the way, because they were effectively clogging up the, the actual mobility culture. Um, but the other thing that was interesting to me was on a kind of software and code level, there were certain cultural values, um, you know, lightly encoded in the applications that were managing the bikes. And one of those is the value system for the customer. Um, if you report, I, I think this was either Mobike or Ofo, but if you reported one being parked wrong or out of place or whatever, you got points. Uh, you know, some kind of credit back as a as a user, as a customer, and so it's a kind of snitching culture that that um, you know didn't really sort of fit locally, but it was also a kind of social responsibility culture that might be more um, sensible, you know, at its point of origin um, uh, within uh, you know sort of Asian cities or within you know Beijing, Shanghai than it would be in someplace like Amsterdam. So it struck me that. You know, not just was the the physical metal <laughs> being imposed in the culture, but also you know, this bits of code were being imposed in the culture as well. Um, and we've seen the same thing happen with with e-scooters in different cities. But since it's a second generation platform after the bikes, I think some cities are wiser about it. So you know, they're taking a more aggressive approach at regulating them. Here, I think, as one of the gentlemen mentioned yesterday, there were you know nine, ten vendors showed up overnight when the boom kind of came this way, but the government quickly, you know, closed it down to one contracted, you know, legal licensed vendor quickly, whose who's scooters you see around us now. Well, one thing that comes out of the scooters I think was interesting, so in your in your talk yesterday, and again, we sort of have to be a little oblique about it, digital <laughs> sensitivities, but when you talk about digital transformation, you touched upon the fact that, you know, that, yeah, that, you know, that really the internet era has been a culture of everything in beta, everything is tested, everything is flexible, and this notion of software eating the world of, you know, of, of software approaches and software technologies, and that, you know, government and culture uh, has been slower to catch up. And I, I'm, one of the things that's been interesting to me is, is with the scooters is, is, is underscoring again I think, I think one of the central claims that the tech industry makes is that it's almost unique power to rewrite culture overnight. And, yes. you know, so in a positive way with the scooters, you know, it's Portland, uh, Oregon saw that, you know, that after a few months of testing, you know, 16% of people said they might be willing to give up their cars. Like, you know, you at least saw this stated preference that like suddenly they were willing to rewrite culture, which I thought was interesting. And the second part was, you know, regular listeners know we've had in the past Lita Reynolds and David Zipper on the, on the last episode talking about the... Los Angeles mobility data specification, government writing its own code trying to regulate this. So government's accelerating its efforts to keep up too. And I'm curious how that fits with, again, sort of your, your view of the world and how innovation <laughs> models are changing too. Well, I think, you know, it's taken a, a long, painful ride, but more and more, you've, you know, we've got a lot of kind of case studies in the, in the rearview mirror that we can look at to see how things were done wrong. Cities are getting bolder, I think, about, uh, particularly as public attitudes become a bit more skeptical about, um, you know what innovation can do for you, uh, and and what the sort of real living day-to-day costs are for these imposed things. 
Um, the, you know, again, there was a, a bit of learning, I think, under some cities' belts in approaching scooters. Some were probably too conservative, some were probably too liberal. Places like Santa Monica, you know, have taken an interesting approach to it. The, the, one of the things that's interesting here is that the landscape does the regulating. You know, there's only, like, it's not really practical to have a profusion of e-scooters running around the UAE, partly because of how it's paved, how, you know, the, the, the seams between structures and, and mobility pathways, um, you know, the fact that the, the climate is not very forgiving. This is sort of the opposite of the Duluth, Minnesota problem, right? You know, here, you basically won't find people using scooters for the, for the summer months. Um, in the U.S., you found the scooter vendors basically having to send trucks to bring their fleet south. You know, the scooters are basically snowbirds. They have to come, they have to follow the temperature bands to the south to be monetizable, you know, enough for the investment to pay back. Um, so here, I don't know that you could really support more than a couple of vendors because, you know, in Dubai, for example, um, outside of places like City Walk, some places along the beach, um, Dubai, well, even the financial center, it's a multi-level structure. Um, Mohammed bin Rashid Boulevard and around the mall is really the only place. So they're, they're kind of like custom-made tracks almost, um, or, or, or they're perfect tracks for scooters. But, you know, the climate doesn't really allow you to do that, and climate sort of defines a lot of other things as well. Well, the other interesting thing, too, so, the, you know, just um, for those of you listening, just in the past week or so, the New York Times published this really amazing story about the Chinese bicycle factory town that was, of course, the huge beneficiary of their boom and then left to pick up the pieces of the bus. And, you know, and, and Scott, we were discussing this in the sense of what does it really say about, A, the innovation model where, you know, <laughs> where they could build, as you put it, they could build housing faster than they could, uh, you know, go through the business cycle of the, of the scooters. But also to me it was remarkable in the sense of, you know, is that, you know, for the last 20 years we've been fed this notion that, you know, supply chains and the Internet of Things, all these technologies would allow us to smooth out demand, that we would have more responsiveness. And instead it's led to this greater whiplash where, you know, where, you know, decisions made on Sand Hill Road are leading to huge knock-on effects because of this. And so I'm curious about what it says about almost the VC model of ways of, of funding this and, and whether we're really allocating capital effectively at this point. I don't think, well, it depends on which side of the equation you're on, but I think, you know, this is kind of my answer to the earlier question, that really the problem is in the economic models as much as the regulatory structures. Um, the, the fact that, you know, capital was allowed to kind of, you know, flash mob its way into supporting some of those mobility startups uh, generated these, you know, enormous m mountains of metal sitting sitting in places. But also, you know, as you pointed out, um, you know, ghost ghost apartment buildings, you know, empty towers of people who are, of, of company towns that actually never really existed. <clears throat> you know, people coming to work on building building scooters or building bikes or whatever it was going to be. Um, so, you know, one of the problems I think is with the mentality that continues. To, you know, this is a this is a, a multi generational shift. Um, and it's going to require a long-term culture of sustainable investment and sort of sensible, um, not necessarily always short, you know, return on investment timeframes. And one of the problems I have, for example, with the kind of micromobility community right now is, you know, it's the classic, <laughs> a classic hype bubble of, um, I like how the, the truck, the side of the truck that's passing us right now says spreading goodness. Naturally, it's a bottled water. Uh, exactly. Um, but the, 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 the kind of hype model that surrounds it means 
you know, we're going through yet another cycle of analysts telling people that uh, well, if everyone dumped their their car, you know, their vehicle journeys and replaced them with scooter journeys, we would solve all of these problems and we would have this you know wonderful return on the money being pumped into scooter startups. It's not a one-for-one replacement between a passenger car and a scooter. There's so many, many different kinds of use cases that aren't practical. Yes, you and I are reasonably young and, and you know, somewhat fit, and I'm kind of agile, but, um, you know, I, there's 99 use cases that don't work on an e-scooter for the one that does. Um, and, you know, families, people commuting in pairs, whatever, or people driving 20 kilometers to, to their office, they're not going to drop a car for an e-scooter for a multitude of reasons. Now, that's a system we have to untie all of the other problems in. But, it, you know, the idea that one thing is going to sweep the other one aside and you're going to have this kind of, like, tabula rasa future that's, you know, like here, like, like Mazdar kind of being built the first time through, doesn't, is not sustainable in terms of investment. No. So we have to think differently about the economics of sustainable transportation as part of a bigger, connected, sustainable economy. Great. Well, we're almost out of time, but one last question to you. In your work here, you teach classes at the Dubai Future Academy. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that's part of the efforts. Uh, you know, UAE is building, you know, um, you know, Hyperloop. There's a challenge to basically, I believe, Dubai has a challenge to do a quarter of all trips by autonomous vehicles by uh, some 10 to 20-year time frame. Um, unmanned aerial transport is, of course, huge here. Um, Scott, when you teach these classes, I mean, when does mobility come up, and, and how do you basically sort of... De- uh, teach it to your class as a design process. So there's a lot of discussion about human-centered design, uh, other approaches to systemic design. Um, how, I'm just curious, as a, as a plug for your own methods, uh, <laughs> you know, how, would you, how would you encourage our listeners to sort of game out the future when it comes to mobility? Well, the first thing I think that's really important, and this is kind of central to, to um, you know, kind of futures methods is, is systems thinking, right? That, that, that mobility is only one part of a much more complex system. Um, and while, yes, it's somewhat possible here in a unique way to, you know, take an empty stretch of, of land and build a, a kind of test system on it, that's really not practical in terms of how it works in day-to-day life. And so, you know, we, we encourage students to think about not just the technologies, for example, you know, self-driving vehicles or AI or different kinds of mobility modes, but to think of it in context of the full journey, to think of it in context of its relationship to the city and the kind of urban environment, to, to the economy and sort of broader structures. So you're always trying to situate um, you know, any possible change or opportunity or risk that emerges in, in kind of transitions and mobility in the broader system. So if they can think about how people's lives, their social and cultural lives will change, um, how the business models may or may not shift, what are the kind of energy models and the infrastructure, this, you know, it, it's all connected. And, you know, that, that can frustrate some people because they want to come in and just, uh, you know, most people that have a glancing blow relationship with futures think, well, I can just come in and think of a really amazing idea and that's that. Um, but what we encourage them to think about is how that idea is, is or isn't going to fit within a broader system that is all changing at different speeds over time. Um, and many of them, you know, take that on board and go away and think about it because they're not, they're not, they're not taking these courses necessarily to sort of run straight into a startup, but to be able to read the landscape as it shifts in front of them, to think systemically about how the broader economy and culture works, and to be able to um, identify sensible, sustainable innovations and changes that will, you know, improve, not detract from well-being over the long term. Great. 
Well, we're out of time here. Thanks, thanks to our listeners who have borne with us as you've listened to birds chirp, uh, a metal flags twist in the wind. Various... We're really just sitting in a, in a hotel room with silence around <laughs> us. This is all about background noise. We're, I mean, we're, it's, it's rare that you can say you're on the edge of a city, but I can actually see the wall that is the edge of Mazdar. So uh, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Scott, thank you so much no, for joining you. us. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, just a reminder that you can subscribe to the Commotion Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. So thank you so much. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Commotion Podcast. Thank you.